What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguera. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny. I'll tell you why. Gonna... <laughs> that's a good one, man. No, I'll tell you why. Look, I was a Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast hosted live from Death Row. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagara. Bill, today we're going to talk about what's known as the Yogurt Shop Murders. And this took place in Austin in 1991. And it's called the Yogurt Shop Murders because, as you might imagine, it took place in a yogurt shop in a strip mall. And, uh, you know, this really changed the whole character of Austin, I think, and it's still unsolved, and I, I think that people are hopeful that it will be solved. Yeah, absolutely. This case here, as you mentioned, is an active cold case, and you and I haven't done many cold cases. We usually elaborate on what we know has happened and then kind of bring down what the serial perpetrator has done or is going to do and it would give insight into what happens here on California's death row. But this case is different. We have four victims, um, 17-year-old Jennifer, um, 17-year-old Alyssa, and then uh, a 13-year-old Amy Ayers and Jennifer's sister, a 15-year-old Sarah. And so there's four victims here, four murders. And as you mentioned, it happened in a yogurt shop, and they've never been able to arrest the right culprits for this murder. However, they did make an arrest. They made an arrest, and unfortunately, for all parties concerned, they arrested the wrong guys. These kids had basically, two of the kids, confessed to the murders, and they blamed some of their friends. Of course, they wanted to solve the cases, as we you and I both have discussed many times. Sometimes a lot of political pressure, as well as just pressure from the media and from the community to be making arrests, and they arrested these two kids, and they spent a number of years in prison until uh, DNA was made available. They tested them, and lo and behold, the two boys were not the contributors of the DNA. So this is an active cold case, and I want to get into just how it happened, what happened, and really kind of wade into what I think um, may have happened, why they didn't catch these guys, and why this case is it bugs law enforcement as well as, you know, cold case slews and everybody else that gets involved in these type of cases, this is the perfect case because there's 
so much there, and yet they still have perpetrators under arrest for it. Right. Um, I mean, one of the problems is the scene was burnt pretty well, so that eliminated a lot of evidence, right? Yeah, that's, you know, you, you, you always want to think that the perpetrator must be some genius guy who really knew to destroy evidence, and that's why they haven't caught him. Well, a little bit both are true. So let's, let's get into the crime. As I mentioned, there's four victims. And two of the victims, Jennifer, who is 17, and Lisa, who is 17, were both working at the shop. It's a yogurt shop, and they closed around 11 p.m. Before 11 p.m., Jennifer's sister, Sarah, who's 15, and her friend, Amy Ayers, who's 13, stopped by at the yogurt shop to get a ride back home from their sister. So they waited while the girls finished with the last customers and closed the shop. So about one hour prior to closing, a man walks in who's kind of harassing the customers. He has to use the bathroom. It takes a really long time. The customer said they also saw two men acting weird and suspicious just before closing. closing. So, of course, after something happens, you know how some people are. They, it, it may be true, but sometimes they, look, I saw this, they see things that really didn't happen, or they overanalyze what they saw, and it really brings a lot of different angles into the crime scene that are really not relevant. So that's really what happened prior to, to the uh, murders happening. The reason I mentioned the guy in the bathroom is because he could have very easily been one of the perpetrators, and he could have very easily left the back door open, because according to law enforcement, the back door was open when they came to the crime scene. So whether he left it open or the guy just exited it that way, we don't know. So, so around midnight, Matt, a law enforcement officer reports a fire at the shop. And first responders go in and they know that there is a fire, so they start using measures to stop the fire, which are power hoses, which, of course, if anybody who's listening knows, that would destroy any evidence that's really there. So when they get into the shop, they find the four girls, and they've all been shot in the head, and later to discover that they were raped. They are naked. Um, the back door is open. Um, and the crime scene is a crime scene now, but they didn't know it was then, so that's why they went with power hoses. And then on top of that, they realized that the bodies had been burned. Um, now, in 1991, there was no uh, forensic DNA collection. No one knew about it. It wasn't even developed science yet. There was still a couple of years in the future to get there. So, in today's forensic DNA collection, you have an expert that comes in and he uses techniques that no one really knows about, and they're very, uh, they're very sensitive. So you really have to know what you're doing to collect it. Obviously, that didn't happen here. 
power hoses to fire basically destroyed everything, and at worst, they didn't know how to collect the evidence. What they did do is that they, once the bodies were discovered, it was discovered that all four were shot in the head. One of them was shot twice, and she was separate from those stacked bodies. So, to really look at that crime scene and start speculating what I believe happened, you have to then maybe first know that I'm going to say child, because this is, Amy is a child, she's 13 years old, and they find her kind of in a separate part of the shop. She has burns to her, and she's been shot twice. So in my opinion, Matt, these clowns stacked the bodies, lit them on fire with paper, paper towels, maybe even lighter fluid, and they screwed up. One of the girls was alive, and that was Amy. When the bodies began to burn, and this is horrible, and I hate to talk about this, but we really want to dissect what happened. She probably screamed and attempted to crawl away from the other bodies. These perpetrators, and I, I do mean perpetrators, Pearl, there were two guys there. And you'll ask, well, how the hell do you know this? I'm going to get to that. So she crawls away. They saw that she crawled away, and they shot her again. Now, why I know there was two perpetrators? The first shots to the head were with a 22 caliber handgun. The second shot that we only Amy received because she had burns and she had crawled away from the the burn scene. That shot to her body was a 380. Perpetrators don't go to crime scenes with all these bulky guns all over them because they're trying to be as unvicious as possible. There was two. What further tells me there's two is that I think they misjudged the crime scene, Matt. They thought that the two girls, Jennifer and Elisa, would be there because they had already scoped out the place and knew they would be there. The crime was not committed for robbery, although that was a component. It was an afterthought. Their motive in doing this was rape. And we know this because after the bodies were uh, collected, taken to the corner, it was found that they had been raped and there was DNA in the bodies. One of the bodies was the 13-year-old Amy, which makes these perps pedophiles. And the other one was Jennifer, um, who was uh, Sarah's sister. She was a 17-year-old who actually worked there. So this is a pretty scary crime scene if you look at it. Any, any thoughts on that? Well, definitely, yeah, robbery would not strike me as a motive because it's a yogurt shop. It's not a Rolex outlet or something like that or a bank. So I don't know how much money a yogurt shop could really have. And, you know, I'm assuming that it was pro profiled because the 
teenage girls were the only ones there. And, uh, yeah. You know, working jobs like that statistically, I mean, you have a better chance getting killed working a retail job like that than you do as a police officer, for example. Yeah, they're soft targets. You're absolutely correct. And, and you're also correct in that there wasn't a whole lot of money. There was the money in the cash register. And one of the reasons, at least me looking at this case and profiling it, one of the reasons that I believe that robbery was not the motive is because there was a, a, a strong box there. And the strong box had money. So these guys come in the shop, and if it's robbery, they're saying, where's the money? Obviously, it's about a cash register, and anybody with half a brain would say, where's the rest of it? These girls know that these guys are serious. They've probably already done a few weird things to them. So they're trying to tell them everything they need to know. They're trying to tell these guys everything they can to save themselves. The first bargaining chip they have is that strong box that obviously these guys didn't know about because it's still there. So robbery was just like, oh, well, there's a cash receipt. Let's take the money. Their motive was rape. And, you know, a lot's been made of at first because they figured the person that did this, what persons, you know, the kids. And they said, well, you know, it must be these, these teenagers who confessed to it. And I completely disagree. And, and I'll tell you why when I call back. Yeah, so talk about these two guys that were um, charged, presumed guilty, versus the profile of guys, like uh, a tandem of guys or whatever, who you know, okay. uh, you know, are, are capable and likely to do this kind of thing. Okay, yeah. So there are only three possibilities, in my mind, as to what happened and how they got in. So the first one would be the back door. The guy that used the bathroom actually opened the back door and they came into the back door. The second possibility is that they were probably the last people in the shop. When the girls began to close, they took over the place and that's where they corralled the girls and did what they did. The third one is that the shop was closed by 11 o'clock and they opened the door for someone who knocked. Now, those, that's only a possibility there if they knew the perpetrator. You know, hi, Susie, it's me, or hi, Jennifer, it's me, hi, Alyssa, please open up, I need to use the phone. They open the door, they gain access, and that's when they take over. Now, I'm going to debunk the last one immediately. Law enforcement checked into this thing that they've had since 1991. No arrests have made of acquaintances, friends. There's no rumors going around. Usually kids that are 17, 16, 18, 19 years old, they talk. They would brag about it. They would say something. Rumors are going around. Somebody would be brought in because of this. No. So the only possibilities are that the guys were in the shop already. While they were closing, they, were, they bought something and they were there. Or they came to the back door. Another reason they know it's not kids is because there's no hesitation. The kill shot to the back of the head is very final. 22 caliber, back of the head, it's a kill shot. There was not, uh, let's talk about this, let's, you know, beat the person. No, this is, which tells me these guys are experienced. 
They've done this before. They've probably been in prison before. And they know each other from prison or they've hung around and they've fantasized about this or talked about it. So that tells me that there's two perps and it also tells me that they're experienced. They're not the smartest guys in the tool shed because they didn't anticipate anything else. Two guys, they go in and they expect two girls. They didn't take any ropes, any bindings, or anything. How do I know this? Well, the girls were tied up with their own underwear, meaning their bras, their panties, that type of underwear. So it tells me is that two guys get there, they find now not two, but four. And their intent is to rape. It's very difficult while one guy is raping, or both guys are raping, there are two girls running around behind you that you don't know what they're doing. They didn't have bindings, so they tied it with their own clothes. All four girls were found naked. I know some experts would say, well, they took their clothes off in order to control them. Absolutely incorrect. Their clothes are off because both these guys were sexual deviants. Not only that, there is a dominant and there's a submissive one here. How do I know this? Simple. Both Jennifer and Amy were both found with the same DNA inside of them, meaning the same perp raped them both. Okay, why is that significant? The police officer and law enforcement that reported the fire came about around 12 midnight. They closed the shop around 11. That gives the perps about an hour's time, or less than an hour, because they had to light the fire and get out of the vicinity before law enforcement walked in. Law enforcement was not called immediately, just happened to walk by the place. So they were in there about 45 minutes maximum. Matt, how many guys do you know that are not sexual deviants that in between 25 to 30 minute span can rape, ejaculate, and then rape again. It's difficult, especially under the circumstances of the stress. Is somebody coming? Could they see us? Has someone looked in the shop? Is someone coming to pick up the girls? All of these things are going through their head. That's a lot of stress. Most guys can't perform at that level unless you're a sexual deviant. So for one guy to do it twice in that time span, he's the dominant. The other one, he was doing his thing, but he was not. That's why there's a submissive and a dominant situation. And um, that DNA has not been, has not come up in any CODIS. It has not come up in any data bank. Um, I believe what they should do now, Matt, is put in the genealogy pool, like 23andMe, might be big with the Idaho murders, and they did a hit on a family member, and then they began to lower the percentage of who the perpetrators are, like it's also the Golden State Killer. So do you think this could have been a spontaneous thing, like they were driving around looking for a target, or do you think it was planned seems to me like it was planned a little bit more than that. Not like it was meticulously planned, but enough to know when it closed and that there were girls working there and these kinds of things. Absolutely. I believe that this guy, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, 
they planted. Again, they're not the sharpest tools in the box, but they're experienced. Um, and they planted it maybe a couple of days ahead of time. They looked at the, the girls, they were probably there a couple of nights in a row. They figured they'd be alone, but they came up with two um, other kids. And these are all kids. They're 17, 15, and 13. Uh, two or 17. Uh, so these are kids. So these guys, immediately to me, are pedophiles or sexual deviants. And, you know, I did something. After I heard about this case, man, I went outside. And, you know, as you know, I talked to a lot of serial killers purposely for this. I, I dissect their brains. I'm, I'm trying to get information to understand them better and to give the public a better insight as to how to prevent running across on these clowns. So I went on to a guy, and he happens to be a serial arsonist, murderer, and rapist. And I pulled to the side. He's not on my yard. He's in the yard next to mine because those type of guys are not on my yard. These guys are a special protective yard. And I, I you know, we've talked a bit. I, I, I have volumes of books on this guy that I've read and written in order to get a good. Uh, classificational profile on him and I pulled it to the side I said listen I got a question for you why would you after you rape somebody why would you burn the body and he got a very curious look on his face he said and he asked me well, why are you asking that specific question I said well he just he said very curious there's, there's, a, there's a case that happened and I was just curious why the guy he said oh he got very excited. He said, oh, uh, yeah, well, you know, after you rape them, you destroy them further. And I, I was very, I said, what do you mean you destroy them further? He goes, yes. Raping isn't about sex. It's about destroying them. And then when you light them on fire, you destroy the person further. So I said, this isn't about evidence? He goes, no, absolutely not. So, was he correct? I don't know for sure, but it's an interesting insight into the mind of how these people would think. He immediately went to destruction of the person. And that sounds creepy, but it gives a lot of insight to how these guys think. That's why I know these, these guys were uh, experienced, they're sexual deviants, and I'm extremely surprised that it hasn't happened again. So these guys being maybe not too bright, but still fairly sophisticated, more so than than someone who's kind of trying it for the first time, is there a chance, like we talked about this guy Lawrence Bitteker, we did an episode on him, and he had a partner, is there a chance they could have met in a jail or prison and started um, talking about their their hobbies and their interests? Yeah, that's a good point. Absolutely. These type of perps, usually you don't meet this guy. He's not your brother. He's not a guy you just meet and just start talking. These type of conversations usually happen in an incarcerated situation where the guy, like Lawrence Bitteker, starts showing his partner, Norris, the pornography he has. And he makes comments which immediately pique one of their interests. And they begin to discuss filling each other out, you know, and pretty soon they have a plan. So I think that's 
possible in this case as well. Because, as I said, the motive was rape. It never was robbery of heels. And, you know, a lot of guys mix their motives. Look at Richard Ramirez. He'd go, he'd, he'd rip off houses, but he'd rape and control and kill people. Was robbery part of the motive? Absolutely. But his main motive was control. And, of course, he received that control by the sexual assault and the destruction of the person who ultimately kills him, which is the ultimate control. With these guys, I, I mentioned that, well, look, I'm surprised they, they don't have a record. I'm surprised that they didn't get caught. And the reason is simple. These type of behavioral, uh, behavioral issues or behavioral tendencies don't normally go away. You don't wake up one morning and decide, I'm going to kill and rape four girls. These guys are pedophiles or sexual deviants. They normally can't stop. And I would be very curious to go into police records around maybe a 100 to 150 mile radius of that place and look for similar cases or cases that may have involved younger girls, pretty girls, to see that if there's any comparison. Look, this is Texas. I don't know how much they're paying it, uh, uh, into the whole DNA thing, how much they want to solve this case. But there's a lot here that they can use to solve this case. You know, we don't have, you and I don't have access to the records. We don't have a lot of access to what's going on. We know that those kids being convicted were innocent. Their DNA did not uh, match. So, okay, so why am I so convinced these kids are not the perpetrators. Well, first and foremost, the DNA match. But let's look at the bigger picture. Four boys implicate themselves in it. And none of their DNA matches. So now you're telling me, or is it suggested that there's not four boys, there's five or six in there, and there's two of them that are more dominant than the, two bo the four boys, and they did the rape, and the other guys just stood around. So you have a yogurt shop. It's not very big. You have four victims. You have six perpetrators. So that's about ten people. Impossible. And why didn't the kids mention the other guys involved? When they're telling, they were saying, oh, he did it. No, he did it. That makes no sense. Another name would have come up, and they would have had their perp. The reason they don't is because it wasn't those four kids. It was two rapists, two murderers. Two pedophiles, the same two guys, and they had nothing to do with those kids. They're the guys I'm looking for, and they haven't found them, which shocks me. So, Maurice Pierce, Forrest Wellborn, Robert Springsteen, Michael Scott. These are the four kids that you're referring to. Uh, Springsteen and Scott went on trial. Now, during this time in the early 90s, it was common for law enforcement, for detectives, to use something called the Reed technique or the Reed method. And it's a method of interrogating people. The basic thing about it is that it presumes guilt. And there are tactics of intimidation that are used to extract a confession. But you're only supposed to use it if you know, if you have really strong evidence that the subject is guilty. If not, it's liable to produce a false confession. And especially among teenagers who are 
intimidated. They don't know the ropes or their rights or um, anything like that. And you see, like, you see young people and people that are mentally uh, not all the way there. You know, they're they're the most likely to give these false confessions. So do you think that's kind of what happened in this case? That's exactly what happened in this case. And, you know, I think we were up so adamant about it and so convinced of it because the DNA didn't match the kids. Obviously, it wasn't the kids. It's somebody else. But, of course, the DA there, and I, I really get a little ticked off when this happens. Man, when you're wrong, I admit you're freaking wrong. All this talk that DA, well, the DNA didn't match, but we believe those are the perpetrators. What are you, freaking moron? Then, then who is he, the perpetrator? These kids are in prison for years. If there was another perpetrator, they would have said so. The two that were testifying against, the two that were on trial, would have said it was, it was Bobby Joe or Billy Joe Thornton over here. They didn't. They never mentioned it because they had no idea that DNA and evidence existed. They would be able to extract DNA profile from the bodies. That's why they didn't know. And that's why I know these kids didn't do it. You have two perps out there that did this. another thing. So, look, I don't have access to police files. I get access to what my attorneys are able to send me, what Matt's able to send me, that I look at and I analyze it as a person who deals with serial killers on a daily basis. I have insights that other people could possibly uh, even imagine. It's like with, look, let's be serious about this and let's be completely candid. What I'm doing today is what Jane Goodall did. What, in the 60s, early 70s, when she went to live with gorillas to see traits, behavioral, and give behavioral analysis that no one had ever seen before because no one had ever lived with them. This is basically what I'm doing. I'm able to extract information from serial killers, serial rapists, serial arsonists to get their motives. Now, am I always right? Absolutely not. I do the best I can with what I have to give the public insight. So what I'm doing right here is to giving you the best insight I can. And here's a piece of evidence that immediately caught my attention. And it's this. At 10.42, we know the girls are cleaning up. Okay, Bill, how do you know this? Well, because the cash register had its last non-sale at 10.42. We also see that the girls got pizza. So they ordered a pizza and they had it brought to the shop. That always happens, you know. You, you work at Kentucky Fried Chicken and you, and you trade with or you swap at McDonald's or whatever. People do this. I used to work at a, at a pizza bar as a kid when I was 14 or 15 years old. And often we would call the McDonald's down the street and say, hey, you want to swap a pizza for some hamburgers? And they did it. So they found pizza in the place. The chairs in the, in the shop were all on top of the tables. That's what you do when you start cleaning up because you're going to mop the floor and clean. You put the chairs on top. So they had already started the process of cleaning. So you're talking 242 is the last sale. 11 o'clock, they're closed. But here's the interesting part, ladies and gentlemen. There was one table that still had the chairs down. What does that tell me? It tells me that when they began to say, okay, it's time to close. There's nobody here. They start cleaning up. There's two, still two perps in the place, and they're eating slowly. They're taking their time. 
They want the girls to start cleaning everything up so no one else comes in. The perps were in the place when they began to close. And when no one was there is when they moved. I'd say by 5 minutes to 11, five, I mean 11 o'clock sharp is when they started. That's how I know there was two people because there was two chairs. That's how I know that the back door did not work. They left the back door. The guy who came into the bathroom, not part of the crime scene. The two guys that did this, they just exited out the back door. Oh, so what do you think, man? Well, yeah, as someone who's worked in restaurants and places like that, there's always the couple that stays late. And it's annoying because you're trying to get out of there, you know, so you can't clean up that table until they're gone. Um, but also it, it can be kind of concerning, especially if it's two guys, because as people start leaving and they're the only two people and you have cash and you're like, what are these guys still doing here? Are they just aloof or, you know, because as the other people leave, uh they're not going to do anything in front of a crowded restaurant or whatever, most likely. But as they just linger, it feels like that's what they're doing is lingering. That's exactly what they linger. And I've seen this before, guys. They stay a little late and they leave. And nine out of ten times or ninety-nine out of a hundred times, they're just you know, taking their time. They're not really planning on robbing. So here's another interesting thing. At... 11.03 p.m., the cash register does what's called a no-sale. I, I think I mentioned 10.42, there was a ring-up for, for a sale. But at 11.03, there is a ring-up, but it's, there's no sale. And I, I'm sure you can elaborate on this. That means that no cash was exchanged. They hit the button, the cash register opened, but there was no sale. That tells me that two things, that the girls opened the cashier to remove the cash to start doing their, 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 their receipts, or the perp already made hit the machine and opened the cash register because he's already taken over the situation. And from there it goes. Yeah, I don't know if you would have to have experience in a place like that to ring in a no-sale Usually there's like two buttons, but if you've never seen a cash register before, by two buttons, I mean you hit one button that says like no sale or cancel or something, and then another button that's usually unmarked that opens the register regardless of what you ring in. So I don't know that uh, someone could figure that out, although it's not all that difficult. Perhaps they could by watching them, but... It seems like you would have to have experience at least with a cash register to to be able to do that, uh, you know, on your first try or something. Yeah, they could have just asked the girls open the cash register and the girls did it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Or they or they could have just been taking the cash out to. I'm assuming at the end of the night they put it in the safe and they they just had it sitting out in a a little drop bag or something. And, you know, any number of possibilities. Yeah, no. That's exactly right. So, yeah, this this case has been perplexing. There's been detectives, you know, there's retired detectives have been looking at this. 
a lot of people who this case it's not been solved. Of course, the DA's office is saying, well, the, the four kids are the ones that did it, and that's just them playing the card that, look, we got who we want because the judicial system let these guys out. That's, that's just ridiculous. And it's just, you know, it upsets people with a half a brain because, because it, it suggests that they can't be wrong. And obviously, staring at them in the face, they are wrong. The DNA doesn't match. When the DA doesn't match in a rape murder, that means you got the wrong freaking purse. Okay? That's what it means. And any person with, you know, I keep saying half a brain, could tell you that. And these guys are sticking to their guns, and these kids did it. And they got a, they got a cop in this situation. And, I, I, and he's been known on a number of occasions of coercing confessions from kids. He uses tactics like, you know, pushing them around, getting in their face, playing good cop, bad cop. And, and we have this in this case as well. And I think the guy's name is Pacheco uh, uh, Polanco, and he's been, he, he, he's retired now, but he was a, uh, yeah, it was Polanco. And he basically pressured these kids into confessing. And um, it was a mess of a case in the beginning. There's a lot of areas where, you know, there's balls dropped. I, I don't think it's just completely all law enforcement's fault. And with the time, too. Remember, we have a time when there was no DNA collection. They didn't understand that you can really profile somebody and give you an exact name when you, when you match the DNA. And the bigger problem was they didn't know how to collect that type of DNA. Um, fortunately, there are traces of the DNA inside the girls because the guy raped them. So that guy is still out there, and I'm hoping that uh, somebody at some point is able to match that DNA to him. So if people are listening to this episode and they know about the yogurt uh, murders, the yogurt shot murders, um, look, you'd be doing, doing a great thing to uh, bring a bit of finalization to these parents whose daughters were taken from them um, for no good reason other than sexual deviance raping children. I mean, I know that sounds kind of brutal the way I put it, but um, at least in my books, there is no place for uh, rape, sexual deviancy, child molestation. These are things that I think the normal parent out there and the convict in prison is offended by it. And uh, I'm hoping, as I know many people are, that somebody comes forward and gives a bit of information to give these families Yeah, the fact that they haven't been exonerated as of, yeah, that they haven't been exonerated is crazy. I mean, it would mean that they would have had to have, like, brought a bag of some other, some criminal's DNA into the thing, into the place or something. It's it's absurd, but that that's also, so when, when they're not exonerated, that means that they could technically be retried. And for the same crime essentially their sentences were vacated but in the eyes of the law that doesn't mean that they're innocent um, and that what that is is that they could then sue they could sue the state they could sue the county they could sue the city and they would be entitled to some money because um, two of them were in prison for 10 years or something they didn't do so it really rubs me the wrong way I think you you touched on that um 
In fact, that's just a, that's not a proper way of saying it. It's just it's really messed up. It's a it's a huge injustice. And and you think of you know if, if this is the way that law enforcement is acting towards people, you know how many others are there as well. Oh yeah, no, there's a lot of them. And you're right that these kids, they're no fault of their own. They're intimidated to make mistakes. I mean, this is the reason why when someone gets arrested, they reach the Miranda rights. They say you have the right to remain silent because anything you say can be used against you in a court of law. That's basically an advice that most attorneys, like not all of them, will tell you: shut your mouth if you get arrested because. Whether you're innocent or not, doesn't really matter. And this is an exact case. And by the way, these kids, because it was a sexual deviant case and they weren't convicted of it, imagine what these kind these kids' lives are like. They can't get a job. They can't get a career. There's always that, that uh, bit of skepticism. Like, are they guilty? Are they not guilty? That's a horrible thing to live with when you know that you're innocent and you did nothing to deserve that type of treatment. And of course, there is the other side of this, which is the victims themselves. They have no justice because the system failed them. Let me call you right back, man. Hey, man. Yeah, and interestingly, you know, in the last few years, we've entered this new phase, this new uh, reality, which is to say, you know, 20 years ago, most people didn't have the internet. And, I mean, think about, well, let's see, is that right? 20 years ago? Well, at least 30 years ago and and you know now everyone has a smartphone and and if you think about how that's changed our lives and just in the last few years we've entered this phase with dna technology where they can solve these cases and we're starting to see them see the uh the pins fall but in the coming years i think we're going to see it happen on a regular basis just one after another after another and i don't think people are aware that we've entered this phase yeah no i agree with you and we're talking on both sides of the coin too there's going to be cases that will be solved because of dna and there'll be men that'll be exonerated too which we see just about every week on national tv that a person's being exonerated for a murder or rape because the dna doesn't match it's a knife that cuts both ways. I think it's a, it's, it's a good thing. It's an advancement that really narrows the margin of error. Because that's what it comes down to. We don't want mistakes made when you have people's lives at stake. Yes, we have victims, and that's a horrible thing. But then on top of that, to get an innocent guy and take him and execute him or put him in prison for child molestation or rape, and it turns out he's innocent, and then because he's in prison, People in prison are very judgmental. They maybe say that this guy was convicted of rape, that means he's or which I'm on station, that means he's guilty. Hey, let's do it to him, because that's the mentality behind these walls. I know people want to look at that and try to place it down. I know what the truth is behind it here. No, it happened in the in the Green case. A guy was convicted of murdering his wife and, and you know, a child was involved. They put him in prison. He did I think eighteen years. And a couple of prisoners, well, they were idiots, decided, huh, they convicted him of it, he must be guilty. Let's rape him. They did that to this man, and he caught AIDS. And then, lo and behold, 18 years later, 
a serial killer confessed to it. They tested his DNA. Guess what? It was the serial killer. It wasn't the husband. They let him out, and now he's got AIDS. It's incredible how that could happen. Today, so I'm hoping that DNA evidence and the refinement of these techniques help put someone in the right place and then also release people who have been charged with crimes and didn't commit. I think that all of us are looking forward to that stage where law enforcement and the judicial system is more of a well-oiled machine that doesn't put the wrong guys in prison because it's a horrible thing not to be put in a place like this or something you didn't do. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Make sure and follow us. I should have said this at the beginning of the show, but I'm, I'm very tired because a very naughty cat kept me up all night. So um, do make sure and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries and check out the Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash death row diaries. Um, also, you'll see on your podcast app, that through Anchor you can get uh, access to exclusive content, bonus content that's uh, otherwise not available, and that's that's going to be available on um, on that on Anchor and on Patreon. So check those out. Until next time, I've been Matt Ralston. And I want to be safe.